turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 5. Um, we're going to be uh, all over Hebrews today. Uh, we'll be back in Exodus a little bit. We'll be in uh, one of the Psalms a little bit. Um, but yeah, we're going to be all over the place and, and a lot of that's going to be up here. Some of it won't. Some of you're just going to listen to and, and kind of think about. But um, in uh, 1 Timothy 4 verse 13, the Apostle Paul told Timothy... He said, until I return, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. So that's what we do as a church. That's what Paul said. Hey, Timothy, I want to come back, but until I do, you just read the Bible, teach it. Read the Bible, teach it. So that's what we do. Um, so Hebrews chapter 5, I'm going to read uh, the first 10 verses, and then we will pray. It says, for every high priest... Chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, You are a priest forever in the order, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death, and he, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these people who have uh, decided to come out this morning and, and gather around your word. Um, I pray that you would come now and take this word and apply it to each of our hearts. I've learned so much from this and, and I pray that, that we as a church will grow in our knowledge of you and our reverence of you and and in our worship of you as we look at your word. God, thank you so much for giving us Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Um, so, Matthew five seventeen. If you don't have it memorized already, you should by now because we've said this so many times. Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot of the law will pass away until all is accomplished. Now that's where we, we're, we springboarded out of that and we're doing this, this series. And, and we, when we studied those two verses seven weeks ago, we learned that for a Jew, when a Jew reads phrases like the law and the prophets or the law and the prophets and the Psalms. For them, that was their scriptures. That's how they defined. They didn't say the Bible. They didn't say the Old Testament because for them there is no New Testament. That's how they describe their scriptures. By studying other passages in the New Testament, uh, the words of Christ in Luke 11, we find out that those Jewish scriptures were 39 or, or make up the 39 books that we call the Old Testament. They are our Old Testament. And so... We've been kind of studying through that for the past six weeks really quickly, trying to get a good handle on Jesus as the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. So when we read the Old Testament, it's, it's not just a bunch of, of disconnected stories. It's all pointing to Jesus, getting us ready for Jesus. So um, in the first week, we saw the gospel promise from Genesis 3. We saw the second week, we saw God's covenant promises to um, Abraham. The third week we saw 
uh, the sovereignty of God in the Exodus and, and how God works and controls all things. Um, the week after that, we saw, or the last three weeks, we've studied the law that God gave to Moses. We divided it up into three different sections, the moral law, the judicial law, the ceremonial law, getting an idea of how all of those things point to Christ and how Christ fulfills all of that stuff. This week... We're making the last transition into what we could consider the straight stretch, the final straight stretch out of the Old Testament. Um, so for the next three weeks, we're going to look at three different offices that were that God established within the children of Israel in the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfills those offices. Now some of you are familiar and have heard of the threefold office of Christ. Prophet, priest, and king. You've heard that. We've, we've used that before. Now, if you've done much reading through the Old Testament, you know that when it comes to leadership of the people of God, the, the men who were in charge, the men who dictated the scriptures, wrote the scriptures, what the, the, the stories were around, usually were these men who were the prophets who make up a large section of the Old Testament. There were the kings, who we read about First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, all those stories about the kings. And then there's the priests, which are connected to the law that we've been talking about. And so um, those are the three primary roles that God instated in His people to govern His people, to direct His people. Now today, as you can probably guess from what we read, we're going to start looking at the fulfillment of those roles and begin with the office of the priest. I thought it would be good, since we did ceremonial law last week, to just kind of keep on going with that theme of the priest and, and his role there. Um, some people throughout history have said that if you're going to understand these offices properly, you have to understand them in the order of prophet, priest, king. Um, I got a quote here from John Flavel, who was a 17th century Puritan, who said, salvation as to the actual dispensation of it is revealed by Christ as a prophet, procured by him as a priest, and applied by him as a king. So you can see how that kind of works in that order. Now, I don't, I don't think that it's necessary that we learn them in that order. But if you can get your mind around that and think that way, it really helps you articulate all that Christ has done for us and that he comes as the word of God. He, he um, procures the salvation and then applies it as king. Um, so that, that kind of helps, but we're not going in that order. Um, we're doing the priesthood this week. Next week, we'll do the, the kingship. And then the last week we'll do the prophetic office, which I think is um, good the way our Old Testament is ordered. It ends with a lot of the prophets. And so that'll, that'll be kind of how we transition out of the Old Testament back into Matthew 5. So we're talking about the priesthood today. And I'm going to kind of go um, four steps, three or four steps in the priesthood. And then we're going to get to Jesus and see how he fulfills that. So the first thing that I want us to learn about the priesthood is the establishment of the priesthood. Where did it, where did it come from? Where's this idea, uh, where does it find its beginning? In the Bible, the first time we read of the word priest is in Genesis 14. Long before the establishment of the law, long before the giving of the, the, the law at Mount Sinai. And we're going to come back to Genesis 14 later. But just know that, that that was referenced, but it wasn't in reference to God's people. It was just... A priest. And that's where we, we see that word. There were other nations who had priests, and but they weren't, again, they were not connected to the Levitical priesthood within the children of Israel. So we see that word there. Then in Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai, we see the first mention of priests within the people of God, but they're not connected with the Levitical priesthood yet because the law hadn't, hadn't come. So there's these, these men... And, and the word priest literally means officiant or overseer or someone placed in charge. And so we got these men who are in charge. They're overseeing people, but they're not Levitical priests who do what, what we're going to talk about today as far as the priesthood. Then in Exodus 28, as God's giving the law, he begins to give details and commands for Aaron and Aaron's sons to be priests and, the, and specifically the garments that they would wear as they served God as priests. And, and when it goes into those details, all of the garments had symbolism with them. Um, they had stones and stuff that symbolized the people of God. Um, and so we begin to, we, we, that begins to shape this idea of the priests as, as this group of men who were going to serve God. Um, Aaron 
was the great-grandson of Levi, who was a son of Jacob. He was one of the twelve sons of Jacob. So Aaron was the first priest, and then his sons helped him, and they, they followed in his paths. And, and later, we come to find out that the entire tribe of Levi is established as the priests. Because you know the story of the golden calf incident. Moses comes back down. He's angry. He said, is there anybody on God's side? And the tribe of Levi, the men step up and say, we're still here basically. And so they are set aside as the men. This tribe will be my men who will serve me in the tabernacle. And they were in charge of everything that had to do with the tabernacle. A lot that we learned about last week. Setting it up, tearing it down. Putting the bread over here, putting the lamp over here, putting the everything. And, and this was a, a mobile tabernacle. So they would have to set it all up, work. And then when, when the presence of God would move, they'd tear it all back down, travel, set it all back up. presence of God would move, they'd tear it all back down and move. So they, they, that's all they did was set it up, tear it down, take care of the tabernacle. That was their job. You, God said, you will serve me as priest in the tabernacle. So that was their full-time job, beginning with Aaron and his sons who were from the tribe of Levi, Levi. And only those from the tribe of Levi could be priests. You had to be from the tribe of Levi to be a priest. Nobody else can be a priest. So that's where it started. And then from there it kind of builds and you see how that office kind of developed. Secondly, I want, to, I want us to learn about the duties of the priests. What did they do? We've, we've talked a little bit about, you know, they set the tabernacle and they took care of all the stuff. But as, as far as after all that was done, there were two specific duties that a priest or the priests had when it came to serving the Lord and serving the people of God. The first is intercession. The priests would actively intervene on behalf of God's people before God because if you will remember in that old covenant system the common person was not allowed to go into the holy places into the presence of God in the tabernacle. The priests were the only ones who were allowed to go before God and they did so on behalf of the people. And I've already mentioned a little bit about the wardrobe that they wore. They, their garments were very detailed, very specific and the way that God told them they're going to make this, this breastplate with these stones on it and this, this headgear and, and everything was very specific and if you read, for example, in Exodus 28, there are these references to, you're going to have these stones and they're going to have the names of the 12 sons of Israel etched on these stones. And the idea was that as the priest wore these garments with these stones, it was symbolizing going before the people of God and carrying on their shoulder all of the people of God. They were going on behalf of God in remembrance of the people before the Lord. So that was, that was what they do. They intercede on behalf of the people before God. The other duty of the priest, which is still kind of connected to intercession, and that we spent most of our time learning about last week, was the, the, the sacrificial system, the, the performing of these specific sacrifices. Because common people were not allowed into the holy places, into the tabernacle, the priests had to go in and make all of the various offerings of worship and atonement on behalf of the people. A common person would come up and say, I want to give a, a burnt offering, and so here's, my, here's whatever animal they're wanting to give. And the priest would say, got it. Kill the animal, do all the work, and the person would go home. So the priest had to do that. So they spent their lives in service at the tabernacle, daily offering up the offerings of the people, going in and out of the tent of meeting all the time. Now, if you remember, last week we talked a lot about the furniture, the lamp, the bread, the altar of golden incense, the Ark of the Covenant. We never saw any seats, no benches, no stools, no squatting spots. There's no place in the tabernacle for a priest to sit down. None. Because there's no sitting down. That you're busy all of the time. They were constantly going back and forth, back and forth, making sacrifices, washing their hands, making sacrifices, washing their hands. On the Day of Atonement, they would make a sacrifice, go change their clothes, come back, wash their hands, make a sacrifice, go in, come out, wash their hands. All of that on behalf of the people of God. And this was a busy job all of the time. Several million people coming back and forth all the time. So there were no seats. They interceded for the people on behalf of the Lord and they made sacrifices for the people on behalf of the people before God. That was their job all the time. Just 
going before God on behalf of the people. Next, I want to consider the purpose of the priesthood. Because a question that might come up is, why did God design it this way? Why is it working like this? Why couldn't a common person just make a sacrifice? Why, why couldn't they do that? Why was it not okay for a regular person to say, hey, I'm going to make a sacrifice and worship God in this way? Why couldn't it be that way? Now, to answer that question, we have to go back to Mount Sinai. And I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 19. Now, this is before God gave the Ten Commandments. And I, I don't think this is up there. I can't remember. I don't think it is. So you just listen. This is before the Ten Commandments came. They're getting ready. Exodus chapter 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. You getting, the, getting this picture in your head? As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called, to, called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people. Listen to this. Lest they should break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down. And come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord. Lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Well, then God gives the Ten Commandments. And at the end of that little giving of the Ten Commandments in verse 18 of chapter 20. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking... The people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So you see in those verses, you get, get that picture. You see that just the presence of God is a terrifying thing. God comes down in fire and smoke. He's speaking in thunder. Such that the people were scared. They were shivering scared because God was near. In our day, we think to experience an encounter with God means I'm warm and fuzzy inside. And I'm thinking positive thoughts. That's not correct. When God shows up, these people are scared. We don't want to be around Him. Don't let Him. You talk to Him and you come and tell us what He said because we're scared. We're going to die. Literally, we will die if He talks to us anymore. And then if you'll remember, Moses comes down the first time. As if that wasn't scary enough, Moses comes down off of the mountain with the Ten Commandments the first time. And they're worshiping the golden calf. They just, oh, Moses is not coming down. Let's just start worshiping a false idol again. And God comes and He says, leave Mount Sinai. I'm not going with you because you're a stiff-necked people. And in Exodus 32, verse 9 and 10, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. And then again in chapter 33, it says, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. 
Listen to this. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. God says over and over, if I continue with this people, this sinful, stiff-necked people, I will consume them. Literally, I will finish them. I will bring them to their end. They will be destroyed if I'm in their presence. Just by my presence, being in their presence, they will die. That's the presence of God. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So here's the problem. And this is a problem that has existed since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. God is a holy God. He's holy, set apart, which means He is completely other than us. He's outside of our sphere of contemplation. He's outside of time. He's outside of space. He's outside of measurements. He's outside of weight. He's bigger than anything that we can conceive of. There's no way that we can even begin to compare Him to anything we've ever seen or imagined. Because He's holy. He's set apart. He's massive. He does not think on our terms, nor is He even in relation to thought as we know it. He does not ponder, because that would require time to pass, and He doesn't exist in time, nor does He ever wait for anything. He doesn't respond with reflexes, but rather he simply acts in a moment as he has decided to act from the foundation of the world. He doesn't expect results. He simply does and it is. He is the effector of all that we see and experience in the universe as well as all that we do not see in the supernatural realm. He's big. There's nothing that can constrain him. Or keep him from ever doing anything that he pleases at any moment in the universe ever. In any world that we can see or any world that we can't see. As Abraham Kuyper says, there's not one square inch in the universe that God does not say, mine. There's not, or there's never been a particle of dust. You know when you hit your car seat, the dust goes everywhere. There's never been a particle of dust to float through the air except that it lands exactly where God said it would land, predetermined for it to land before the foundation of the world. He knows how many hairs have ever been or will ever be on the heads, knees, knuckles, and faces of every human being that has ever lived or will ever live, as also, and also every animal that has ever walked this earth or will ever walk this earth. He's named every star in the universe. He's numbered every grain of sand on this planet and every other planet in the universe. He's numbered every blade of grass on this planet since the moment He spoke it into into existence. He's counted every root hair, every root, every tree trunk, every branch, every twig, every leaf, and every seed from every tree that has ever or will ever sprout on this planet or any tree that might exist on another planet somewhere in the universe that we don't even know of. He's heard every breath. Every sound, every creak, every squeak that has ever been animated from every human, every animal, every wooden plank in the floor, or every metal hinge since time began. He's heard every musical note that has ever been sung, played, whistled, or scratched from every person, instrument, bird, or cricket that has ever existed all at once. And he himself brings those notes into the musical range That we have come to understand only because of the design that he made for our brains to work in relation to our eardrums as my words come out of my mouth and into your ears. He's guided every drop of rain that has ever fallen from every cloud inside our ozone to its exact appointed destination on this planet. He sends forth every bolt of lightning that ever strikes. He has pushed every hurricane and every tornado into the exact path that He has laid out for them and watches as every particle of dust and every piece of debris is picked up off the ground and He puts them back down exactly where they are supposed to be. He's unlike anything that He has created. We have no starting point to relate Him to. 
We, we, don't, we can't begin. I wish that I had time to describe him, but time won't exist that long. Human languages were not made to capture his character and nature. Where every page of every book and every library that has ever existed on the planet covered front and back with the smallest font that man could invent, there would not be enough trees or pens or people or words or time to ever describe God to us. He is simply, I am. I am who I am. I will be what I will be. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He's just, I am. Because He's unlike anything we know, He is and must remain completely separate from us. Fallen, sinful man. When Adam sinned in the garden, and because of that sin, everything was subjected to futility, that separated us from God forever. God is perfect. He's never sinned. He, he, he will never sin. It's outside of the realm of possible things for God to do to sin. You say, well, you're saying you're constraining God. Absolutely. God is constrained by His character. If He sins, He's not God. So by definition, He cannot sin. It's impossible for Him to sin because sin, by definition, is falling short of God's glory. And exalting something besides God, since God's ultimate aim and everything He has ever done or will ever do, is to exalt His glory and uphold and magnify His own glory in His name. He cannot act in a way that usurps His own throne. He can't do it. Whatever He does, that is right. Whatever He does, that is good. Whatever He does, that is justice. Because He's perfect and holy, not only can He not sin... But he can't come into contact with sin. He has no affiliation with sin. He's not acquainted with sin. He's, he cannot have communion with sin. He's holy. He is righteous. He is just. And he is good. We would do well to sit and read scripture and ponder the holiness of God on a regular basis. Exodus 15.11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Leviticus 11.45 You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 19.2 You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 20 verse 7 Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. 1 Samuel 2, 2, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. 1 Samuel 6, 20, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Psalm 22, 3, yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. Psalm 34, sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. Psalm 89, 18, For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Psalm 99, 5, Exalt the Lord our God, worship at His footstool, holy is He. Psalm 99, 9, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Psalm 103, 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is, that is within me, bless His holy name. Psalm 111.9, He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. Isaiah 6.3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. When you see it three times, that's the superlative. That's holy, holier, holiest is the Lord of hosts. As Isaiah 40, 25, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Habakkuk 1, 13, For you, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Ezekiel 39, 7, And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. 
1 Peter 1.16, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Revelation 4.8, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Revelation 6.10, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Revelation 15.4, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. God is bigger than we can conceive. He's holier than we can imagine. And we are more wicked than we know or care to admit. So because of the holy nature of God and the sinful nature of man, there there has to be some way... That this relationship is mediated. We can't go before God. It can't happen. It will not happen. He's he's too too big. He's too holy. He's too right. We're too wrong. He's perfect and we're sinful. Our bodies cannot withstand His presence. That's where the priests come in. The priests mediate between God and His people. Before the priest could go into the Holy of Holies or the holy places in the tabernacle, they had to go through washing, they had to go through consecration, they had to be anointed and prepared, they had to be set apart themselves by the decrees that God had given just so they could go into the holy places of the tabernacle without dying. In Leviticus chapter 10, there are two sons of Aaron. Nadab and Abihu, who went in, get this, they went into the tent to worship. They went before God to worship and they offered an unauthorized worship or a strange fire, it says. And fire shot out and consumed them. Dead. Why? Because you don't worship God in a way that He has not authorized. In 2 Samuel 6, many of you know the story of a man named Uzzah who was walking beside the Ark of the Covenant. And the oxen that were carrying it stumbled and it was about to fall. And he he reached out to try to catch the Ark of the Covenant. And God struck him dead on the spot. Because he touched the Ark. Why? Because you don't touch the Ark. That's it. You don't touch that. It doesn't matter why. The end never justifies the means if the means are not authorized by the Lord Himself. The point is, there must be a mediator. We can't do this. Like I said, our bodies would be consumed if we went into the presence of God. That's why when we die and we're resurrected, we get new bodies because these ones won't work. We go before God, boom! I don't know what would happen. We'd implode, explode, evaporate. I don't know. We can't do it. God is holy, man is not. God is good, man is not. God is perfect, man is not. It won't work. There has to be a mediator because we can't go before God. And that brings us to the, the fourth point about this priesthood. Is that the priests were men too. They were men. Just like us. I want to read some more from the book of Hebrews. And I think this will be up there. Hebrews chapter 5 again. Where we started. For every high priest chosen from among men. Is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sins for his offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when God, only when called by God, just as Aaron was. See, these these men, these men that were chosen out and consecrated and separated and anointed, they were still sinners. They had to make sacrifices for themselves before they could even go before God to sacrifice for others. Hebrews 7.23 The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They were mortal. They couldn't live forever. They, they would do this their whole lives. They would serve in the tabernacle. And that may be a long time, 80, 90, 100 years, I don't know. Their whole lives. But sooner or later, this group of men is going to be dead and we're going to have to train some new ones. They're always getting new priests ready and training new priests because these were mortal men. Hebrews 10.11 And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So first of all, the priests had to stand. 
There were no seats in the tabernacle. There was no rest. There's always work to be done. Always sin to be atoned for. Always sacrifices to be made. Always washing to be done. No seats. No rest. Secondly, they were offering insufficient sacrifices. They killed bulls and goats. Bulls and goats. Every day, bulls and goats. And this says... They can never take away sins. It wasn't even doing what it was supposed to do. And we learned last week that those outward sacrifices were not sufficient for what needed to happen. So the human priesthood was a failure in that sense. It was never designed to work. It was flawed from the get-go because it involved human beings. It existed to point us to something else. Which is this, that Jesus is our great high priest. The purpose of today's message, like always, is to look at Jesus. So that's where we're going. Jesus is our high priest. Let me just rattle some of these off. Hebrews 4.14 Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews 8.1 Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Hebrews 9.11, we read last week. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Jesus is the great high priest. These verses state plainly, He is it. This is what we were looking for, and so we got to see how that works. So four more things about Jesus as our high priest. He's the necessary high priest that was required to complete the task. He performs the duties of the high priest perfectly. He fulfills the purpose of the high priest perfectly. Because fourthly, he is the great high priest. He is the perfect high priest. If you've got a Bible, turn to Psalm 110. I think it will be up there too. Psalm 110. says a psalm of David David wrote this that's what that means psalm of David and that's important the Lord says to my Lord sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the whole over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. See, in this psalm that David wrote, he's, he's writing about this coming king. We see phrases like, your mighty scepter, you will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves. You will shatter kings. You will execute judgment. This is a king. David is is speaking of this coming king who would come as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Remember Genesis 14. That's the one time that Melchizedek is mentioned in in the entire Bible except for the New Testament or in, in here. This man just shows up in Genesis 14. His name is Melchizedek, which means... King of righteousness. He was the king of a place called Salem, which means peace. And he was a priest of the Most High God. Now, like we've already said, you study the Old Testament, there, there, there cannot be a priest king. Can't happen. Priests are from the tribe of Levi. Kings are from the tribe of Judah. Can't happen. They can't be from both. Kings could be prophets. Priests could be prophets and vice versa. But priests cannot be kings. Kings cannot be priests. Melchizedek was a priest king who shows up out of nowhere. No genealogy. We don't know who his parents are, where he came from. We don't know how long he lived, where, if he ever died, how long he lived. Nothing connected to him at all. He just shows up. A priest king. He blesses Abraham. Abraham gives him a tithe. Just in case that doesn't settle... If you're blessing somebody, you are greater than the one you're blessing. If they give you a tithe, you are greater than the one who's giving the tithe. So he was greater than Abraham. So in this psalm, David is 
foreshadowing. He's, he's, he's prophesying this present need. God's people need a king who can reign over them rightly and lead them rightly, but who could also be a priest for them and intercede for them. They need a king in the order of Melchizedek, like this says. Not like Aaron. Aaron can't be a king. He's a Levite. Jesus comes as the priest king. He is the king of righteousness. He is the prince of peace. He has no beginning and no end. He's greater than Abraham and King David. He meets the requirements of the great high priest. Nobody else could fulfill this requirement except Jesus. When it comes to the duties of the high priest, once again, Jesus fulfills them completely and perfectly. As far as intercession, back to Hebrews 5. Verse 7, it says, In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death, and He was heard because of His reverence. Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Prayers and supplication. That's intercession. In John 17, we read of what is usually labeled the high priestly prayer. Jesus is on his knees praying for his disciples and us who would follow after them. He even says, I am not praying for the world. I'm praying for those you have given me. He's interceding on behalf of his people before God. Hebrews 7 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives. That is, he lives forever. He's never going to die to make intercession for God's people. He never dies. He never gets sick. He never takes a sick day. He never gets tired. He never has to train another priest to come behind him. He intercedes for us forever before the throne of God above. He intercedes. He also perfectly fulfills the priestly duty of the sacrifice. And we read about this a little last week. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Chapter 10, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for a for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Father. He offered Himself up as the sacrifice. This one time only for everything sacrifice for all sins, past, present, and future. He doesn't have to go back day after day and offering more sacrifices he doesn't have to go and give a bull and a goat and a bull and a goat and a dove and some flour. No, it's done. He offered himself one time for everything. He also perfectly fulfills the purpose of the priesthood. Because he is the perfect mediator between sinners and a holy God. 1 Timothy 2.5 There is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ. See, he can do this Perfectly, because He is both God and a man. He relates to the holy character of God because He is God. He never sinned. He never had any fault. He wasn't in bondage to sin and decay like we are. He wasn't born of a sin nature like us. He was perfect because He's God. He relates to us because He was a human being. He was 100% human being. He was a man. He was tempted in all points, just like us, and yet without sin. He can mediate perfectly between fallen humanity and holy divinity. In Christ, and this is key, in Christ, we have communion with God. In Christ, we can come into the presence of God. In Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. Christ fulfills the purpose of that mediation problem between us and God. He does that perfectly. And then in all that, what we end with is this. Jesus is the perfect high priest. He's the great high priest. The final, complete totality of everything the priesthood was pointing to. 
Hebrews 7, 26 through 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Listen to that description this high priest that it was fitting for us to have, that we need. Here's the high priest that we need. He's holy. Jesus is the Holy One of Israel. He is one with God the Father, the exact imprint of His nature. Innocent. Jesus is innocent. He's never been charged or convicted with any offense. He cannot sin. The verdict is and always will be innocent when it comes to Jesus and the blood that He shed for us. Unstained. There's no flaw to be found in His character. There's no stain to be found in His nature. He's perfectly clean. He has no record of wrongdoing ever. Separated from sinners. Because Jesus is holy and innocent and unstained, He's separated from sinners like us. He's not like us. We're not the same. He stands apart as different. He would not blend in with our culture if He lived today. He's different. Exalted above the heavens. He's exhausted. Exalted above the heavens. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. At the name of Jesus, someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It will happen. He is high and lifted up. He is exalted. He has passed through the heavens. All the glory of the universe does not compare to Jesus because He is exalted above the heavens. He has no need for personal atonement because he has no sin. He doesn't need to make atonement for himself before God. He comes perfectly before God's throne on our behalf. Hebrews 10, 12 through 14. One more time. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified once for all time. Because Jesus is perfect, holy, separated, unstained. He is the innocent God-man. He was able to offer this sacrifice that will last for eternity. The death of Jesus was and is sufficient to atone for every sin that has ever been committed and will ever be committed in the universe. There's no sin that the blood of Jesus cannot cover immediately. There's none. Nobody has committed a sin that say, oh, that's too bad. God can't love me. Nobody. Because His blood is sufficient. One sacrifice for all time. And lastly, it says that he sat down at the right hand of God. Remember, there are no chairs in the tabernacle, no seats. The priests were constantly working day in and day out, sacrificing animals, washing, interceding for the people. There was not much rest and there definitely wasn't time to sit down. But when Jesus died on the cross, he offered one sacrifice for the sins of his people. There's no longer need for any sacrifices to be made. Because Jesus was the one perfect sacrifice. There's no longer a need for a tabernacle because Jesus is where we meet with God. There's no longer a need for a lampstand because Jesus is the light of the world. There's no longer a need for the bread of the presence because Jesus is the bread of life. There's no longer a need for an altar of incense because Jesus' death is the fragrant offering going up to God to intercept the stench of our sin and transgression. There's no longer a need for a mercy seat because when Jesus came, He took on the wrath of God Himself for us so that we would not get what we deserve. Jesus is the mercy of God. There's no longer a need for a veil in the tabernacle because when Jesus died, the veil was torn, literally torn. As His own body was rent, the way into the presence of God was made open to us as God's children through Jesus Christ. 
There's no longer a need for bulls and goats because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the great high priest. It's done. He fulfilled it. It's finished. I wanted to read this because we, we, we play these songs and oftentimes I think we sing them and don't even realize what we're singing. But this song says, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. You can imagine as, as people in the Old Testament would come and they would be guilty of sin. I, it's unintentional. I didn't mean to do it. So, you know, here's a goat, I guess. There you go, priest. Take it. I hope it works. I still done wrong. So, see ya. I, I, still guilty. Day of Atonement comes just to remind people, hey, for the past 365 days, you've been sinning. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on His hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, His precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for every race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds He bears. Received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. The father hears him pray, his dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his son. The spirit answers to the blood and tells me, I am born of God. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear with confidence. I draw nigh and Father, Abba, Father, cry. That's a term of endearment. That's like Daddy. We go to God in Christ and say, Daddy, Father, because of what He's done for us. That song it was written in 1742. That's a really old song. Some of you may have sang it before. It didn't sound like that when it was written before. But Jesus is the great high priest who finishes that. There are those in our day who think we're trying to get back to trying to reestablish what's going on over there. Let's send money so they can rebuild the temple and start the sacrifices again. That's You're throwing trash in Jesus' face when you say, let's start sacrificing goats again. That's blasphemy. He's, it's done. It's never going to happen again. It's finished because Jesus is our great high priest. Let's pray.